Please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Psalms, to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. For the choir director, upon Ijaleth Hashashanar, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him Rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as ravening and roaring and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. <clears throat> For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers encomp has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answered me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes 
my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vow before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he rules over the nations. And the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. I will be told of the Lord. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has finished it. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. To the great blessing of your children, that you would use it to draw sinners to Jesus Christ. Help us to see the beauty and the blessing of this grotesque scene on the cross. Help us to grasp the bitter as well as the sweet. By viewing the cross, help us to worship with grateful hearts. We pray now that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. We ask for the building up of your church, for the adornment of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Last week, as we considered this psalm, the very beginning, I mentioned that David is a prophet. David is called a prophet in the New Testament. And in this psalm, David is prophesying of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross of Calvary. We have cause to believe that David knew that he was speaking of the coming Messiah. That he knew. Maybe that surprises you. We've already read this this morning, but let me read it again. Acts chapter 2 verse 30. And so because David was a prophet, this is the word of God. And so because David was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. David knew that he was speaking about Christ. Now, this reference in Acts 2 is, is for a quote from a different psalm, but it's reasonable to think that if David knew in one prophecy, in one psalm, that he spoke prophetically about the Messiah that was to come, then he probably knew here in Psalm 22 as well that he spoke of Jesus, though he might not have known to call him, he would not have known to call him Jesus as we do. David probably knew. But we who have the whole canon of Scripture, we absolutely know that this Psalm 22 is prophetic of Jesus Christ. 
And for that reason, as we work through this psalm, you will hear me speak of Jesus directly. Jesus said, Jesus did, and so forth. And this is because this prophecy is about Jesus and it was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus at Calvary. As we assign the words of Psalm 22 as they were spoken by Jesus, we don't know how much of this psalm Jesus actually spoke, Jesus actually quoted on the cross. We know some portions that he quoted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know some portions, but we don't know the extent to which Jesus quoted this text. But this inspired psalm, whether Jesus said every word of it or not, this inspired psalm does tell us the expressions of the heart of our Lord as he hung there on Calvary. So we feel comfortable in assigning these words and these emotions and these expressions to the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Last time we spent a great deal of time, the entirety of our message, in pointing out that these few words at the beginning, making the point that these words at the beginning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They are in no way an indication of a rift or a tear in the fabric of the Trinity. The Godhead was not injured. Surely this forsakenness, this feeling of abandonment was very great. And these words show a certain distress and anguish on the part of the suffering Messiah. But we must say, however real this is, that it is not a separation of the Godhead and that it is a suffering of Jesus according to his humanity. Now let us consider this psalm and its two main divisions, remembering that the first 21 verses speak of suffering and anguish. And the final 10 verses speak of victory and triumph. Notice, in verse 1, the question. We could emphasize and focus on each word in this question. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Last time we considered my God. My God, and we considered forsaken and what it cannot mean. But let us consider now as we think of this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Consider the you. If you remember the King James, the thou. Why have you forsaken me? All those who gathered around Jesus to hear his teachings while he was on earth were gone at Calvary. 
those who had come to him, seeking him out for healing, for a touch of his hand, either for themselves or for their loved ones. Thousands who had come to Jesus to be fed, to eat as he multiplied bread and fish for their bellies. They're gone. Simon Peter had denied the Lord Jesus with cursings. The other disciples were nowhere to be found. Only John was there at the foot of the cross and he was there taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Every human had abandoned Jesus Christ. And somehow, in Christ's mind, that was believable. He could comprehend that. That was expected. He knew that they would forsake Him. He knew that they would leave Him, every one of them. But He asks here, why have you forsaken me? The Father. This forsakenness by the Father is far worse than anything any man or every man could do. The suffering of Jesus was not in the abandonment of men, but in this forsakenness by the Father. We note in the second place that this question is not to seek information. This is not Jesus asking a question in order to get an answer. Why have you forsaken me? Though you and I can benefit from asking the question, why? And seeking an answer. And we will ask that question later in this sermon. Why? But Jesus is not asking a question to gain knowledge. This question is simply an outcry coming from the most abysmal suffering and agony that could be known. This is Jesus, the God-man, in the deepest distress known to man. No person living has ever experienced the absolute forsakenness by God. Every person living and breathing and walking on this earth is in some way or another, usually in many ways, but in some ways, experiencing the grace and mercy of God. Here, on Calvary, Jesus experienced what those who go to hell will experience. The forsakenness of God where there is nothing known of His mercy, nothing known of His grace, only His wrath, only judgment for sin. 
This is Jesus, the God-man in the deepest distress known to man. Note the cries of the suffering one as they go unanswered. Verse 2, By day I cry and you do not answer, and by night, but there is no rest. No deliverance, no rescue, no answer. If we try to imagine what we might have felt in that moment, that moment of abandonment, how we may have handled this, this forsaking, And we should think of it because this forsaking was rightfully, truly mine. Rightfully and truly yours. How would you pray in that moment? Would you pray in that moment? Would you curse God? Look at Jesus' response as he cries out to God, Why have you forsaken me? And no answer comes. And his response comes in verse 3. But you are holy. You are holy. Our fathers trusted in you. Jesus looks to, to the historical faithfulness of God to his people and he finds no room to accuse God no room to point a finger no room to curse God how many times do humans on this earth while experiencing some level of grace and mercy of God find a reason to curse God find a reason to ignore God Find a reason to hate God. Jesus on the cross looks honestly and finds no room to accuse. He says, you are holy. In his deepest agony, Jesus found a firm foundation, a confidence in that God is holy. He has delivered his people those men, our fathers, those men trusted in God and they were not disappointed. And the man, Christ Jesus, trusted in God and he will not be disappointed. But in verse 6, Jesus says, I am a worm and not a man. I am a worm and not a man. If we can even fathom it, Christ, the Son of God, became man. Such humiliation to be made lower than the angels. But now on the cross, Jesus is even further humiliated. He is lower than low. And He says, I am not a man. Now this is figurative language. It's expressive language. And if we note the literary form, this is poetry. We read this as poetry. 
So we don't take this when Jesus says, I am not a man to say, well, you see there, Jesus is fully God, but he's not man. No, this is figurative, poetic language. He says, I am not a man, and we read it as poetry. These words express reality, though they are not literal. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it again. These words express reality, though they are not literal. I'm not a man. He's saying I'm lower than a man. I'm not a man. I am a worm. How low. How disgraceful. How gross and sickening. We used to sing a song in church when I was growing up. And the, the lyrics said, for such a worm as I. And some people said, that's, that's gross. That's offensive. We should change the lyrics. They changed the lyrics to, for a sinner such as I. Because I guess in their mind, saying I'm a sinner is better than saying I'm a worm. It, it is grotesque and offensive, and we really should apologize to all worms. The lowness of being a worm. And notice that this word here is, is it's set the word worm is set with the words I am. I am. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus only a short time earlier brought hundreds of soldiers knocked them off their feet by saying I am. And now he says, I am a worm and not a man. The following verses describe the physical condition of Jesus as he hangs there on the cross. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Men sneer, they shake their heads. This is a, this is a judgmental shaking of the head. Verse 8, they say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. We read that from Matthew 27. As those people said, let God. He, he, he worshipped God. He claimed to be sent from God. Let God rescue him. If God is happy with him. This is fulfilled there in Matthew 27. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Now let God rescue him. If he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. See the mocking 
And this is all fulfilling this prophecy from Psalm 22. How you get, how you get all these people to fulfill this prophecy. It's the work of God. The question comes naturally. How? Why would the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who surely knew this psalm, they knew the psalm that is before us today, surely they knew that these things were prophetic of the Messiah, yet they spoke in order to fulfill the messianic prophecy. But then they strongly denied that Jesus is the Messiah. It leaves us wondering what what was in their minds? But it should leave us glorifying God for His sovereign power over all things. God brought this about. God brought this to pass. In verse 9 and 10, we have an account and testimony of Jesus' faithfulness to God from the incarnation through infancy and childhood all the way to the cross. You have been my God from my mother's womb. The next verse gives us a description. The next verses, the next passage gives us a description of those who tormented Jesus. And they're described as animals. Again, it's, it's poetic language. They are bulls, lions, Dogs, wild oxen. This is real threat. These evil men are dangerous. Strong bulls, ravenous and roaring lions, and dogs. And, and when we read this, that, that they're dogs, don't think of my golden retriever. This is not the kind of dog. This is not your little pet dog. This is the wild and deadly dogs that would be found in that region. This is filled with emotional distress, but it's more than emotional distress. There's absolute physical anguish that is included here. We find it Poetically described in verse 14, poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, heart melting like wax. Verse 15, strength is dried up and the tongue clings, clings to the jaw. The tongue sticking to the jaw made me think of how when a person is dying, when they are right at death's door, to try to comfort them, to try to give them some relief in their last moments. Their loved ones will give them, when they can, ice chips. But then later, when they can no longer handle ice chips, a little sponge on the tongue and on the lips. Here, Jesus hangs on the cross and his tongue cleaves to his jaw. And there's no one to give him water to help him. He's given to 
drinks. And both of them are an insult and detestable. Sour wine and wine mixed with gall. But that was no comfort. That was no help. This description of his physical condition comes to the end of verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. <clears throat> Many people have argued for who is responsible for Jesus' death. Is it the Romans who drove the nails? The Romans who, who pronounced the execution? Is it the Jews who instigated, planned, and and brought this about. Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Who is it that's responsible for Jesus' death? Well, all these are what we call second causes. Second causes. You lay me in the dust of death. It was the Father who laid Jesus in the dust of death. Isaiah tells us it pleased the Father to crush him for our iniquity, for our sin. This agony, we get, we get hung up on the physical pain and torment. But I truly believe that the, the main thing is in my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sins of all those who would believe in Jesus were laid on him and he bore up under the full wrath of God due for our sins. I want to introduce a term here that, that may be new to some of us. This term is penal substitutionary death. We hear penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in the place of all who believe, in the place of those who would trust in him. That's the substitutionary part of this theological term, penal substitution. He died in our place. But the beginning, penal substitution, this word means that God the Father was on Calvary judging sin, punishing Christ for our sin. The sin of Adam that every one of us has inherited as well as the multitude of sins that we have committed in disobedience to God's law. All the punishment due for those sins. Every ounce, if you will, of punishment. Every drop was delivered, was measured out against Jesus Christ on Calvary. His death was not just an example 
of how to face difficulty. He died a penal substitutionary death. Jesus didn't only die. His death was penal and substitutionary. Payment for sin on behalf of all who would believe on him. We use the term that Jesus is our propitiation. It's a Bible word. It's in some of the hymns that we sing, propitiation. And it's important as we speak about Jesus to understand these words. To understand, lest we, lest we forget what he has done. Lest we preach something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is important for us to remember that it is a penal substitutionary atonement. If you don't remember the words penal substitutionary atonement, remember that Jesus died being punished for the sins of all who would believe on him. And that's what we mean by it. But we use this word propitiation. Propitiation means that God's wrath for sin was completely satisfied. God's wrath for the sin of all who would believe on Jesus was completely satisfied, satiated because of Christ Jesus' death on the cross. Some of you have watched television shows, criminal shows. Some of you may have had personal experience in the courts. And you know what it would be to have a conviction expunged, taken away, completely taken away. It, it's not parole. It's not pardon to be expunged. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is our propitiation, that the payment is satisfied. The prophetic nature of this psalm is seen no clearer than in verse 16. The bulls, the lions, and now the dogs have surrounded and they... The, the verse tells us 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, what is that? It's crucifixion. This is evident to us that it's speaking of crucifixion. What may not be evident to us is that at the time that David wrote these words, crucifixion had not yet been invented. Piercing hands and feet wouldn't have made sense at that point. Psalm 22 was written some thousand years before the time of Christ. And after David wrote of this piercing of hands and feet, it was another 500 or so years until the Persians invented crucifixion. 
And then after the Persians invented crucifixion, 500 years after this was written, then the Romans perfected it. And when you look at the the perfecting, the invention of crucifixion and the perfecting of it by the Romans and the time periods that it was used, guess what? It becomes evident that God brought this about just for Christ. Other men died of crucifixion. But this was prophesied a thousand years before Jesus and it was just for him. It was just for us. The Romans knew precisely how to kill a man. More importantly, they knew precisely how to keep a man alive in order to maximize the pain and torture that he would endure. You didn't want him to die too quickly. So they knew exactly how far to go, exactly how to keep him alive. When verse 17 mentions, I count all my bones, it speaks of the oddly uncomfortable position of the body as it hung on the cross. The person on the cross in this torturous position would be unable to breathe without pushing up on their nail-pierced feet and pulling up on their nail-pierced hands to breathe, to catch a breath. This would allow a man to stay alive until the soldiers grew tired of the torment and were ready for him to die. When they were ready for their day to be done, they would come by and break the legs of the men who were on the cross so that they would no longer be able to push up to get a breath and the men on the cross would die of asphyxiation. They would suffocate. And they came to Jesus and they did not break his legs. Because when they went to break his legs, he had already given up the ghost. He was already dead. But they couldn't just let it go at that to make sure, to make absolutely sure that he was dead. A soldier took a spear and pierced through his side. And the Bible tells us that blood and water came forth. Blood and water coming forth indicates that the heart was pierced. That Jesus' heart was literally broken on Calvary. Verse 18 of the psalm tells us, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The soldiers cast lots to divide the clothing, Jesus' clothing among them. His clothing being removed, Jesus hung on the cross 
naked. With the world looking on, he hung there in shame. I'd like to take just a moment to return to the question, why? My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why? Jesus didn't ask this in order to get an answer. It was a cry of anguish, but we ask and we should seek the answer. Why? Why the forsakenness? Why the cruelty of the cross? Why did the Father lay Jesus in the dust of death? And the answer to these questions, it's multiple. First of all, everything God does is that He will be gloried, that He will be glorified. Throughout redemptive history, God is glorified by all that He has done. And most especially by the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, He is glorified. This is the first and the primary reason why did Jesus die on the cross for the glory of God? But there's another answer. And for us sinners, from our perspective, this is the answer we need. This is the answer we look for. Why? Why did Jesus die on the cross of Calvary? Why this forsakenness? Why was our sin laid on Him and He endured that? Because there was no other way. No other way. We hear people say, well, well don't offend. Don't offend the Jews who say you can get to heaven by keeping the law. Don't offend the Buddhists. Don't offend the... You name it. There is no other way. All other religions lead to hell. Jesus' death on the cross was the only way for sinners to be saved 2,000 years ago and is still the only way for sinners to be saved. And this is not something that you work for. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you prepare yourself for. It's not something that you're good enough for. It's something that we receive by faith, by believing not only that Jesus died, but that He died for me. Gaining entrance into heaven is, for a sinner, is impossible. Listen, going to heaven. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus, then who can be saved? They were saying, this is impossible. And Jesus agreed. Yes, with men, this is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. To receive forgiveness for sinners from a holy God is unthinkable, unfathomable. And then, not only to receive forgiveness of sin, but then to be clothed in perfect righteousness, unimaginable. And all of this was accomplished by the life and death of Jesus on Calvary's cross. 
There is no other way of salvation. Jesus made it very clear when he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Just very quickly, and we need to hurry, but I want to look at these final 10 verses. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to the brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. The declaration goes out. The name of the Lord is proclaimed to all of the ones who Jesus calls here, my brethren. Remember that in the incarnation, Jesus became our brother in humanity. And here he is proclaiming the victory won on the cross to his brethren. In the suffering of Jesus, God is glorified and the brethren of Jesus are the recipients of this great blessing of his victory over sin and death. All those who call upon Jesus in repentant faith are heard and are helped and are saved. There is great blessing for those whom Jesus calls my brethren. He calls them you who fear the Lord, descendants of Jacob, those who seek him. Dear beloved sinner, the call comes for you to seek the Lord. Humbly come to Jesus and receive the payment that he made for sin as your own. Believing more than Jesus died for sinners, but that he died for you. Confess his blood as payment for your sin. Hear the blessings that come. Verse 26. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise him. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And and stop And notice, take notice of the last half of verse 29. All who go down to the dust will bow before him. Going down, remember Jesus was laid in the dust of death. All those who go down to the dust is speaking of those who will die. Every one of us will die. Every person who dies will bow before him. That's what this psalm says. And and the New Testament restates this when we read every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Beloved, don't wait until it is too late. Come to Jesus now. Bow your knees before Him. Lay aside your pride. Come humbly to Jesus. Confess now that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and my King and my Lord. The psalm says you can't keep your soul alive. Come to Jesus before it's too late. 
All those who come, verse 31 says, they will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that the New American Standard says he has performed it. He has performed it. That is to say, he finished it. This psalm that began with Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ends with it is finished. He has performed it. And Jesus spoke on the cross. It is finished. Payment for sin is done. Salvation is accomplished. Jesus suffered unspeakably on the cross of Calvary. And by doing so, he finished purchasing a people for himself. And he is the only redeemer of God's elect. Believer, behold your Savior and worship him. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, not only that he came, not, not only that he came and, and became the God-man, our brother in humanity, but that he came and lived and died the cruel death that was necessary to purchase our pardon. That he is our penal substitutionary propitiation. God, we pray that you would bring every heart that is yours to worship and to praise and to overflowing joy in Christ and boasting in Christ. And for those who are lost, for those who do not know that heaven is their home. For those who are still in their sin. We pray that you would. That you would save. That you would convict of sin. And of righteousness and of coming judgment. That you would bring them. To Christ Jesus in salvation. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.